You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Megan Fritz, very nice to see you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Dan. So um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience. Sophia, of course, is part of the bloggingheads.tv and meaningoflife.tv network. I am Daniel Kaufman. I'm your host. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I also publish an online magazine called The Electric Agora. Um, and this program is available both as streaming video and audio podcast. I am very pleased to be here with Megan Fritz. Um, Megan, why don't you just give a little brief introduction to yourself and uh, we can get going. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Megan Fritz. I'm a visiting assistant professor of philosophy at Utah State University. Uh, the things I work on are a really eclectic mix. Uh, my, my main area of research is action theory, but I also do a lot of work in normative and applied ethics uh, and stuff on 19th century philosophy, especially Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, and only very recently a little bit of philosophy of religion. So I do have a paper coming out that is kind of on Pascal's wager. Um, but that's been uh, my only my only foray <laughs> into this topic. Um, oh, I'm so interested in that. Maybe we'll have something to say about that. I didn't know you worked in that area. Um, yeah. um, visiting assistant professor. So you, now did you just recently finish your PhD? I did. In fact, uh, let's see. One week ago today. Like uh, last yeah. week, right? Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. Congratulations. Um, how, and, and now I, the way, the reason I know Megan, no, is because I follow her on Twitter and it happened entirely by accident. I don't remember even how it started, but it turned out that her work and views in theory of action are so close to mine just by total coincidence that I immediately was like, oh, wow, I have to follow this lady and, and see what she has to say. Well, there's very few pre-Davidsonians walking around, right? Um, um, and so um, that was the first thing that interested me. And then, um, um, you know, as it goes from there, we started talking and then we sort of agreed to do this. Um, let me just ask you, so... I know, I know the job market is terrible. Um, um, how long is your gig at Utah State? And then what, is your, what are your plans? I mean, are you basically pounding the market every year, sending out 50 applications, or what are, you, what are your plans? Um, yeah, so basically, um, my, my gig that I have now is potentially renewable for a few years. Um, so that, that is nice. Uh, and I love my department, so I'm happy to be there as many years as they'll have me. Um, the thing further complicating it, uh, is that my husband's also a professor of philosophy. <laughs> so yeah, basically what we're doing is applying every single place we can. Um, and you know, um, just hoping that, yeah, it is. I mean, truly, as long as I'm just able to teach somewhere, I'll be happy. I don't really care about titles. Um, so you're going to, you're going to follow his career path. In other words, as long as you can, in other words, I guess what I'm asking is, let's say you get the tenure track offer. Is he going to follow you and try to get gigs there? Or are you guys basically going to go where he goes? So we'll go where there's the best overall opportunity. So if I get a tenure track job and he can get some kind of lecturing job, um, then we'll, then we'll do that. And vice versa. Um, as long as we both have employment and can, continue to live with one another. That's, you know, that's, that's the goal for sure. Um, are there children? 
Other children? Other children? They're not not yet. I mean, yeah, not yeah. Currently, no. Okay, because that just makes it a thousand times harder, right? So, I mean, I mean, if, you, if you're young, even if you're married, you can make that work, even if you have to move three times. But with kids, man, so I'm glad that you don't have that to carry as well um, in terms yeah. of uh, difficulties. Um, where's Utah State? Utah State is in Logan, Utah, which is way up north. It's basically um, on – well, it's, it's very near the border of both Wyoming and Idaho, so it's northeastern Utah. So it's not near Salt Lake City. It's seventy miles north of Salt Lake. Oh, okay. It's pretty. It is pretty near then. Yeah. Even near yeah. enough to like, if you want to go like to the theater or something, or something that you need a big city for, you can go. You can just drive there. It's not prohibitive. Yeah, and Logan is really. I mean, it's small in size, but there's so much there. Um, and it's right in this valley in the middle of the the Wasatch Mountain Range, and it's. I mean, it's, it's like one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Every day I wake up and I just yeah. can't kind of believe that I live yeah, there. Yeah, people I think sometimes forget just how spectacular Utah is. Um, um, I did a – after I graduated college, a friend of mine and I did a cross-country road trip. And I think you, just in terms of landscape, Utah probably impressed us the most just in terms of the uh, – the land formations, the, the the spectacular kind of, you know, um, huge – trenches and i mean i mean it looks like an alien landscape part of it i mean it's quite remarkable oh yeah um, so much diversity in terrain as well yeah, yeah yeah um is it as heavily mormon is the school heavily mormon the way schools the schools in salt lake city tend to be you know the town is very mormon um the my my students i i mean i suppose the majority of them were raised mormon i didn't get the impression that most of them were themselves Mormon. I, I mean, this, I mean, I obviously didn't ask them, so. No, 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 um, I know, yeah. but you yeah. know, in, in Salt Lake city, the presence of it is very manifest. Um, yeah. and, uh, obviously if you teach it, bring them young, but I've even had people tell me that, um, uh, the university of Utah is quite, uh, quite, um, quite heavily Mormon. So I just was wondering whether. But they were uh, all very polite and respectful, which makes me think. They're probably more. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably not Italians. Um, so um, <laughs> I just remember I used to teach in the South Bronx, and uh, um, it was not quiet or respectful, um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, okay, so what we're here to discuss is – so Megan and I interact on Twitter, and I don't remember what this was. This was probably um, – she was talking to somebody, and because I follow her, it showed up. And then, of course, I had to, like, put my two cents in, even though I wasn't part of the conversation, and then she re reacted to me. Basically, what happened was there was some ongoing conversation about the philosophy of religion that Megan was involved in. And I said that, I, as far as I was concerned, philosophy of religion at this point is only a subject of historical interest. And um, Megan did not agree with this. Um, and so... Um, I then thought, okay, well, maybe we, maybe there's something productive to discuss here. And so I contacted her privately. We did have a private dress rehearsal of this conversation to just make sure that there was something there and that we'd get along and all of that. And so um, that's, that's what we're here to discuss. Um, so, you know, Megan, last time, I think when we talked privately, I was probably somewhat in Kuwait. Um, so let me, I can actually just say, I have two reasons, right? Why I think, the philosophy of religion is purely of historical interest. So 
why don't I just lay them out and then you can, you can set me straight. Okay. Um, 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 so first of all, let me make, make it very clear that what I'm not saying, I am not saying that, um, that I, I cannot in any way understand people having religious commitments. All right. That's not what I'm saying. I take philosophy to be fundamentally a rationalistic inquiry, okay? It's an inquiry that is concerned with questions fundamentally of rational warrant, all right? Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, H.A. Pritchard in the early part of the 20th century basically argue that ethics is basically epistemology, right? It's how do you know what your obligations are, right? Um, um, and I think you could make an argument that all of philosophy is shot through with epistemic uh, questions. Um, and so with it, what, I, what I'm, the point I'm going to make about philosophy of religion is within the frame of philosophy. That is a rational inquiry, right? I am not concerned with um, going after non-philosophers and sort of interrogating they're non-rationally grounded commitments. Like I'm not interested in that. That's not my, my point. So within philosophy, A, I don't think there are any rational grounds in the modern era to believe in anything supernatural. That's number one. And number two, because religion is concerned with the supernatural, there is no reason in the modern era to philosophically engage with religious questions as live contemporary concerns, right? Let me give a, a, a 2B, right? Because there's a, a, a really a third part to this, but it's related. Um, there is really no longer room in the modern era, in my view, um, um, philosophically, to engage in substantive a priori metaphysics. That is to to purport to discover substantive things about the world purely a priori. So if all of that's correct, then you could see why philosophy of religion would be entirely of historical interest because it's mostly concerned with things like proofs for the existence of God um, uh, and, 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 and the like. Uh, questions like the problem of evil and, you know, eschatology and soteriology and all of that sort of stuff. So that's my reason. Now, set me straight. Why am I, what's wrong? Why, why am I wrong about this? Um, well, I, I actually was started out with a point uh, of a semi-agreement with you on something, which is that, um, so I do, I think that philosophy of religion is a credible current concern. Um, I, but I, I think I share your worries about a lot of contemporary philosophy of religion. Um, so Please explain. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I tend to think that in general, now I should, I should preface this by saying I might be wrong about this because there are actually very good um, atheist philosophers of religion like Graham Oppie. Um, and, uh, philosophers of religion like Paul Draper, who was atheist now, he, I think he's some sort of agnostic, who do, who will say, um, that the people have, or that will say that, that theists can be rational. You can rationally, uh, be a theist, um, even though, so they, they don't hold to any kind of, um, you know, view like there's only, there's one exclusive rational attitude that can be had toward any set of evidence. Um, so they don't hold to like this uniqueness thesis. Um, but they, so they, because they reject the uniqueness thesis, they think actually 
there, there are rational theists and there's rational atheists. Um, of course, they have their reasons for rejecting uh, theism. So, so I should preface this and say, I am not, I certainly don't work in the area of like proofs for the existence of God. Um, people far smarter than I do work in that area. Um, yeah, but look, you know, we all but, teach this stuff, right? I mean, come on. I mean, it's hard to teach intro classes and avoid things like the cosmological argument and the ontological argument. I mean, it's hard to do history of philosophy and entirely avoid medieval, you know, Augustine and, and, and Aquinas and stuff. And so, I mean, we're just having a sort of a conversation, educated but lay conversation. Um, I, absolutely, there, there is an entire sort of like subfield of philosophy in which professionals work in this area. Um, but I, I, I mean, I am, I am, I am confident enough to sort of say what I'm saying to them too. In other words, I would say to Graham Oppie the same exact thing that I just said to you, right? Um, and so, you know, I don't think one, I don't think we have to be specialists in order to be able to engage with these subjects. Um, I, you know, philosophy is not science. Okay. So the fact that you're a specialist is not like saying you're a specialist in organic chemistry and I work in, you know, I work in, uh, in, in botany. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not expert enough to have this conversation with you. I don't think philosophy is like that. And so, I'm not all that impressed, but the fact that somebody specializes, all that that means is that they published a bunch of stuff in academic journals that three or four people have ever read, right? So, I mean, I, 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 it's not like there's this cumulative body of knowledge that's building like there is in natural science in which there's this kind of collaborative division of labor. So I'm not going to be sort of shied off of discussing these things because somebody else has done academic research and and I necessarily haven't. I am perfectly capable of examining these questions quite 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 sharply. Um and so I think we should just not let that bother us. Yeah, well, so the only reason I brought this up is because the next thing I'm about to say <laughs> is that I actually don't think philosophy of religion should focus on proofs for God. Okay. Um, so what should it focus on? Um well I, I tend to think that people either have a broadly naturalistic intuitive view of the world or they don't um and that and that there's there's probably no those are probably determined entirely by culture by time and history by um other things like the the you know area you grew up in the family you grew up with maybe the experiences you had um as child and um and that philosophy of religion what it what it should do i think when it's doing its best is to take the take religious worldviews and put them under scrutiny, um, as well as making people well. How should I phrase this? I think a big job that philosophy of religion should be doing, but is neglecting to do, is showing people why it would be good if some particular religion or some particular you know God existed. Some particular religion is true. Why um, it would be good. So would that get to would that get to things sort of like because I mean some of the proofs or arguments for the existence of God that you think maybe philosophy of religion shouldn't focus on they do overlap with that sort of thing right so like for example like um, a lot of a, a Christian apologist I mean I've heard William Lane Craig say this multiple occasions right will say that well unless you have um, God and specifically Jesus um, there's no grounding for morality. Right. So, so that would be 
right? So that would be something that would do both, right? It would be a re, it would be an argument for God's existence, but it also would do something like you're talking about, which is explaining why it's a good thing to have. Because I mean, it would be very bad if we didn't have any grounded grounding for our morality, right? Or would it be bad? I don't know. Um, but are you thinking of questions like that? Or are you thinking of something else? Well, what I'm thinking of is that I think people have what people believe. In, in terms of naturalism versus, well, what's called naturalism versus what's called supernaturalism. I think a large part of why people, you know, sort of come into their mental life assuming one or the other is a background picture of the world has to do with their, their ideas of the good. Uh, what, what is, you know, what, what strikes them as good? So I think for the committed um, naturalist, which I'll, you know, say later why I actually think that's kind of a misnomer, but I'll use it in the conventional way now. But the committed naturalist, you know, something that strikes them as, as really good is critically examining, you know, the world, doing, uh, conducting empirical investigation into the world so that, you know, we have an accurate idea of what's out there and what the nature is of the things that are out there um, and not letting ourselves get kind of carried away into fantasy, um, becoming, you know, strict disciplinarians of our own minds. And I, I do think that's good. And of course, on the other side of the coin for the committed naturalist is the idea that, you know, here's something that's bad, getting into flights of fancy, letting yourself be uh, comforted with these sort of fairy tales, um, when the reality of the world is that those, those comforts aren't out there, and we should be, you know, prizing the truth. All those things are good. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I agree. Guess I don't understand. How would you, how, but it sounds, I mean, now that sounds to me, though, like a lot of the traditional philosophy of religion questions, right? I mean, isn't that now getting down to well, is it a fairy tale or isn't it? And doesn't that can then get down to, well, what does, does this, does the damn thing exist or not? Right. I mean, does, is, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, you really think that there are philosophically rationally respectable grounds for particular religious orientations. So like, you know, there are rational grounds for thinking that, Christianity is true and all those other stupid religions are just myths and superstitions and fairy tales. Cause I, 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 I would are, say, I would say that there's zero chance that that's the case. None. Um, so I'm going to agree with Pascal here and say that there's no rational basis for either the very foundation, either of the very foundational assumptions, naturalism in the colloquial sense versus, you know, a, a theistic worldview. I don't think there's any, there's any way to use reason and evidence to come to either one of those conclusions. Really? So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm on board with Pascal there. So you don't think that the incomplete though it is story that science increasingly is converging upon regarding the origins, nature, and behavior of the universe and the things in it has a better rational ground than saying that a invisible super being um, whose name was Yahweh and drowned everyone once and impregnated virgins and all these things. I mean, you really don't think you're getting into specifics now though, but that's what I asked you. I said, I just said, I don't think that there are any rational grounds that there is zero chance that there will ever be a rational case that one could make for any specific religious commitment. And I thought you disagreed with that. Uh, well, I haven't said anything about that yet. I, uh, okay. Initially, yeah. So, so I want to s- just start with the foundational worldview. So, 
um, theistic worldview, or, or we can call it a supernaturalist worldview. Although I'll want to, I want to talk about that because I do think that assumes a view of nature, kind of sure. um, basically. Sure. But so supernaturalism versus naturalism. Between those two foundational positions, I don't think any evidence can adjudicate. Um, there is no sense in which, um, say, like, you know, our theory of evolution rules out the existence of a god. There's no sense in which, um, uh, in, in which our, you know, transcendent feelings rules out the possibility of there being no god. So I, I think, so I'm, I'm currently with Pascal in that. These foundational starting things, those are not uh, things that we can hold because of the evidence. Uh, it's not like there's a, a rash, an, an evidentially rational one to hold and an evidentially irrational one to hold. Um, but then, of course, there's, there's more specific uh, ideas on both ends, but especially on the supernaturalist end, you know, it, it, this explodes into, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of different um, views about, you know, the, the nature of God. And, you know, you have deism versus theism versus pantheism. Um, versus polytheism, uh, and you know, of course, you know many, many, many different religions and different theology. Um, so those things, I think, at, at least some of them, you know, can be rendered evidentially more or less rational than others. So, um, you know, I just, I just um, did a dialogue recently that just posted recently with Josh Rasmussen, who's another, who's. I a, love Josh. Yeah. So. I find him frustrating um, because I feel like he's having one conversation with me and then he's having a different conversation an almost contradictory one when he's over in his religious universe. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say that like, I feel like he's being dishonest with me, but I do feel a little bit vaguely rough in that kind of direction because he, he, he evinces a kind of openness a view when we talk that then when he does his apologetics, it seems to me is clearly not what his real position is. Right. I mean, his real position is he is fully committed. Um, um, and so I, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm hesitant to sort of go into purely his sphere because I worry that he's so committed within that sphere that I'm going to, be so disappointed that it's going to be just sort of like an unpleasant conversation. Right. Um, because I, when we, when we talk outside of the sphere, I find him very rational and lucid, but then when I watch his apologetics, I feel like I'm watching a crazy person talking. Right. And so, I mean, well, because I think apologetics is crazy people talking, right. It's not him specifically. It's, I think, I think it's adults playing a game, the kind of game that, 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 Otherwise, you stop playing when you're about six. Um, but adults just keep playing it. And in this one area, everywhere else, the make-believe is over by the time they're, they're past six and seven years old. But the one fantasy monster that they still go on with as adults is this one over here. And I, I, I mean, I, again, I understand outside the philosophical sphere that all sorts of things come to play in terms of the commitments one makes and the lives one leaves. But I'm speaking again within the philosophical frame. I just don't understand it at all. It represents a level of compartmentalization that I just could not, I could not manage, right? I could not manage, you know, on Monday being very epistemically rigorous. And then on Tuesday, talking about, you know, fairies and ents and, and all kinds of bizarre stuff that don't exist, right? Um, and that's essentially what I think apologists are doing. 
I don't see any more reason to believe any of the things they're talking about than I do when I read Lord of the Rings. Okay. And so well, um, has his, he does. Ha- I mean, he does engage in, in apologetics. On he a, does a, quite a lot of it. I don't know if you've but watched he, it. He has a wonderful book. Um, How yeah. reason can be to God that has so many, I think, I mean, as much as I don't work on, <laughs> or really fully understand many of these very uh, yeah. intricate like proofs for and against God's existence. Um, from what I, I have to work up the guts to ask him about it. I mean, I'm just basically being a coward is what I'm being. Um, 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 he's very nice. Oh, he's, he's, he's incredibly, I mean, the problem is not him. It's me. That's the problem. Um, um, but let's talk about these foundation. You know, the reason I raised him was because, you know, I, I don't have any foundational commitments. I'm not a foundationalist. And I don't, and I, and I don't think, you know, that's another thing that we could talk about, but I don't think there's any good credible arguments for, for epistemic foundationalism. Um, I, like I said to him, I think of epistemology as entirely local, um, um, is a local concern. Uh, I, in that sense, I'm very much with Wittgenstein. I basically think knowledge is a bunch of small villages. I don't think there isn't everything, and I don't think there's a knowledge of everything, right? Um, and so I reject, you know, even the very impetus that leads you down these sort of theistic roads, I reject before I even start because they all assume kind of totalities and hugenesses and necessities and I need an explanation for everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. (laughs) And, and, and it's not only do you not need it, but then when you invent invisible super beings to explain it, it's even worse, right? I mean, just, just leave it alone, you know, walk down the street, you know, get your, get your newspaper, you know what I mean? Just like, but he's obsessed with these giant questions. And I just, I, I never understood it. Um, I do think that that actually is partially temperamental and comes from, you know, Judaism is very pots and pans. As a matter of fact, if you read the rabbinical literature, they, ha- they strongly discourage metaphysical speculation. Um, because they think it's ungrounded. It just spins off in every possible direction. It's really unconstrainable. Um, and, uh, and it really doesn't have anything to do with your life on a daily basis, which is, you know, what, what, if you're going to have an ethos, it should govern how you live, not be about what's going to happen in a billion years or whatever. Um, um, but I just don't. So when you say foundational, I ask myself, okay, so I don't have a foundation. I, you know, I, I, I mean, if you ask me, are you a naturalist? I said, I don't know. I mean, ask me something specific. Do I think that there are parking regulations? Yes. Do I think they're physical entities? No. Um, does that mean that they're non-physical entities? No. Um, um, does that mean that they're entities at all? No. Um, um, do I think that there are super beings that you can't see? No. Um, you know what I mean? In other words, I don't know why I have to have a view on any of those things. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. So maybe um, instead of saying like, something like foundational uh, beliefs or anything like that, I'll, I'll borrow a term from Charles Taylor uh, and say spontaneous social imaginary. Um, so just you got to say what that is. <laughs> yeah, sure. So so for Taylor, this is just the automatic lens through which we tend to see things. Um, so someone who uh, lived in, you know, um, 17th century uh, Europe is going to have a spontaneous social imaginary of what you now call supernaturalism, right? Um, people in uh, even, so maybe actually, especially the, 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 the ancient Stoics have this uh, a spontaneous social imaginary of a, a very 
uh, ordered universe, right? A determined ordered universe. And so that means that, you know, none of our observations are pre-theoretic. They're all going to be filtered through this spontaneous social imaginary. Um, and so whatever that is, so I think for some people, maybe it's a belief, maybe more for analytic philosophers who have kind of, you know, reason, spent their time philosophizing so much that um, they don't have any like spontaneous imaginaries anymore. They just have these reasoned beliefs, maybe all the way down. Um, but for people- I doubt like, it. I doubt it. Yeah, I mean, I, I also kind of doubt it. So I, I'm with you in that I don't want to say that I, I have any like um, things that are like, these are the things I believe in their foundational um, but I do recognize that I have spontaneous social imaginary. Often this shifts from day to day, depending on uh, even my environment. Am I at my parents' house? Am I by myself? Am I outdoors? Am I in my office? Am I in the classroom? Um, but that there's generally people have one that is um, with them more of the time um, and affects uh, affects even what their observations are. If that makes sense. It does. But how does it get me to, there are invisible super beings that it's really important. I know their characteristics and what they want from us. So that's, I mean, I think really what you're, asking me to talk about, which I think is a good question, and I probably haven't thought about it as much as I should, is the relationship between um, theism and religion. And I don't think it's, at least for me, and, and I'm certainly not your, you know, your average philosopher of religion. And you know that I'm, you know, I'm, I consider myself agnostic, even though I also consider No, I didn't know that. I thought you were, actually, I thought you were a Christian. Oh, so I am, but I'm agnostic. Okay, no, no, please, you don't have to laugh because I'm going to say something very similar to you, I suspect, but please tell me what you mean. So what I mean is that I, and possibly this is, you know, because I'm an academic and I'm sort of alienated from my own thought life, but I have a hard time you know, ever having this like phenomenon as though I am very confident in asserting that I believe things about, you know, what you call deep metaphysics. Um, so I'm, I'm actually with you there. I think that's right. Um, but I also think that I, I mean, I think the same way about saying that I'm very confident about naturalism or anti-supernaturalism. So I, so, so I think religion doesn't depend on firm beliefs, uh, that there is a God or, or particular beings. I mean, and this might be something you're sympathetic to. I mean, Judaism typically, you know, is very, Praxis focused, and whereas at least cr- traditional Christianity is much more, you know, credo uh, over. over I, I, the way I think of it is in the Abrahamic religions. So Christianity is the most theological, Judaism is the least, and Islam is sort of in between, mm-hmm. is the sense that I get. Um, yeah. And in terms of being a Judaism, so I, I, I am very, very much identified Jewishly. I call myself a Jewish atheist. Um, um, and so I don't believe anything supernatural exists. I don't believe that, you know, the Bible recounts any sort of history or, or really to, you know, tells you much about anything that actually happened. I think it's sort of like the Kalevala or like, like the Odyssey or something. I think it's primarily the national mythology of, of the Jewish people. Um, that includes maybe some rudiment, some rough history in it, but probably not, not all that much. The more we find out, um, um, 
but um you know as a, as a culture you know so for me being jewish is a little bit like being irish or being italian right i mean so mm-hmm. it comes with manners mores cuisine an ethos um even a sort of kind of sense of humor i mean all these sorts of things none of them entail anything supernatural whatsoever right i mean they they don't they don't require there to be one single non-earthly fact right i mean about about anything um um about us and um so i so i i know that the word religion is in philosophy of religion but my impression of the subject it is that is over it's overwhelmingly concerned with theological questions right mm-hmm. now maybe you're uh, saying philosophy of religion should become more sociological now i might i might go for that right but as it's currently done, that's not my impression. Yeah. Um, I think philosophy of religion is kind of divided into two camps. Uh, one of them is, is proofs uh, for or against uh, just the mere, you know, existence of supernatural beings or first causes or whatever. Uh, however, you know, bold the proof is trying to go. Um, and, and the other is, is theological. And, yeah, I mean, the main reason that this is going to be hard for me maybe to talk about is that I, I, I have a hard time, you know, I have a hard time knowing what people mean when they talk about beliefs uh, in these kinds of things. I mean, I think I have a very, I'm very Wittgensteinian in almost all of my philosophical intuitions. Uh, and when Wittgenstein talk, is talking about uh, these religious beliefs, he uh, says um, you know, well, go ahead and believe what, what harm will it do? Belief is just a submitting to an authority. So I kind of like that, um, especially for these things that, you know, it, the, the firmest believer in theism is I think at least has to admit in their honest moments that we don't, they don't believe theism in the same way they believe that, you know, a table is in front of them. It just can't be the same kind of thing. Um, it's interesting that you say that because... I don't know about philosophers, but a lot of apologists will say that. I know. Um, there, I there's a guy, don't there's, want to there, defend there's that. a guy on YouTube who does, whose name is, whose handle is Pine Creek. And um, he does this kind of Bogosian like street epistemology on these poor religious people that are willing to talk to him, which I don't understand why any of them are. He himself is a former Mennonite. And I gather that, his sister had MS or some really devastating condition and was a super evangelical and it, and it actually killed her, right? It killed her because she did not pursue real treatments and instead of pursued the magical thinking treatments. Um, By the way, I would want to say also that I'm not as sanguine about treating as harmless these commitments. I think these commitments kill people. Yeah. Both in religious wars through religiously inspired terrorism and through the neglect of physical health, material well-being, psychological well-being. I mean, I live in the buckle of the Bible belt and my most damaged, hurt, broken young students have all been done so by religion and specifically by evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity. So I don't believe that these views are harmless 
I think that overwhelmingly they do more harm than they do good. Certainly the, the more what I would call extreme versions. Um, and so, you know, I'm not talking about some, some boring garden variety Methodist walking down the street. I'm talking, you know, I'm talking about these very intense commitments. Um, um, I, I've just seen the, the, the human wreckage they leave behind. And so, um, I'm not as sanguine about just sort of letting them, letting them be, but, but that's not our discussion here. Um, 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 but yeah, I mean, I guess aside from the aside from the sociological dimension of it, which I think is an interest of interest, live contemporary interest, everything I see in 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 philosophy of religion either has to do with ontological questions or epistemological questions or normative questions having to do with ethics, and most of it has to do with either grounding or foundations and. Now, you know, and so let me, let me revise my statement and ask you what, what you think of this. If I'm a person who does not believe that either reality requires grounding, that contingency requires explaining, that morality requires grounding, um, or that um, the something, why is there something rather than nothing question is worth answering, right? Or even, even a good question. If I don't think any of those things is philosophy of religion, a live contemporary concern. Cause I'm, I'm wondering whether our argument is on those subsidiary issues, not on this one, right? You know what I'm saying? Because I think all the things I just said, I, I would say, I, I don't think anybody needs to know or are not good questions. And so if all if you accepted all of those, would philosophy of religion be a live contemporary concern? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, Still. I might accept most of those. Um, so what's yeah. left? What's left? Well, I might accept most of those, and and the interesting thing that I think follows from accepting those is that there is is that it's it's wide open what might be true about uh, the you know the the grounding of the universe if it has one, if it does, what's the nature of it? So it's wide open. I think while that doesn't doesn't have one and doesn't Mm -hmm. need to have one and even asking whether it has one, it's dubious whether that's even a well-formed question. You know, um, I guess what I'm saying is supposing I think that none of those are good questions Mm -hmm. and thus don't require or deserve any philosophical treatment. Is there still something left for philosophy of religion to do, or is it basically bound up with grounding these various very big total kinds of things. Well, I see. Let me ask you another question to get your position straight. So I, I think I'm with you that it doesn't require that reality doesn't maybe require a grounding maybe. Um, But it seems like then you're also saying, and in fact, I think it doesn't have one. Is that, is that right? Well, that's kind of tricky because if it doesn't require, you know, what I'm essentially saying, what I want to say really is that these are all bad questions. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the sense sure. that they don't have one, in the sense that there's no question to be answered. It's a, it's a, it's a bad question. It's, I don't want to go as far as saying the question is ill-formed, but I want to maybe, if I used grammar in the Wittgensteinian sense, I would say it involves pro- mistaken, mistakes in grammar. Yeah. Um, maybe I would, I would say in a Rileyan sense that can, it involves category errors. Yeah. Maybe in with regard to a Carnapian sense, I would say it's asking external questions 
that are of a form that really can only be asked internally, right? Um, um, There's a bunch of ways I would express what's wrong with these questions, but I think that they all have a similar vein running through them. And that is, um, you know, the problem is, you know, the problem is that I think that because I can ask, you know, um, well, this cup exists. So there has, you know, there has to be, you know, something had to, make it or how to that therefore I could ask the same thing of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. That to me is a mistake and it's being misled by the surface grammar of certain kinds of questions Mm -hmm. to ask questions that are bad questions. And I got, I would say, I think that's true of all those big questions that philosophy religion tries to answer. That's my answer to you. Okay. I understand. So I mean, as someone who is, largely a Wittgensteinian. I'm very sympathetic to that, uh, to this idea that these propositions aren't really truth functional, if they're propositions at all, um, which I guess if they're not truth functional for Wittgenstein, they're not going to be uh, propositions, at least pseudo propositions. Yeah. So I'm actually pretty sympathetic to that. Um, there are people doing philosophy of religion from uh, the standpoint of, of Wittgensteinian grammar, notably Gabriel Citrin at Princeton uh, is doing really interesting work in this area. And I'm sure he knows many other people who are as well. Um, Can you give, I mean, I don't, I'm not familiar with it. So could you, are you able to even give a sketch of it? An impression um, of what it looks like? Up, it would take approaching a it from that <laughs> angle? Um, well, let me. Is it sort of like yeah. treating religious languages, kind of internal language games that, that have their own internal rules and all that sort of thing. And, yeah, so so back to what Wittgenstein said about, you know, like, well, go ahead and believe. I mean, he, as you probably know about Wittgenstein, did, like, sort of, he was sort of, like, drawn to Catholicism. Yeah, he had some you know, very weird. Yeah, he, so, he right. Was, so he you know, he's very much were, a, self, a self-hating Jew um, of a sort that was pretty common in Central Europe, which was, you know, fiercely anti-Semitic. And so it must have been very conflicting for him to come from a Jewish family and at the same time, you know, I, I always, I always found his, you know, I, I don't know if you've read the culture and value collection. Um, so, 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 you know, the Wittgenstein didn't publish books, obviously. Um, but there's a collection called culture that goes under the title culture and value. Oh, I actually have read things from that. Yep. Okay. So I've read that several times and that's where he has all this sort of religious stuff and stuff about Christianity. And there's actually some pretty anti-Semitic stuff in there, interestingly enough. Um, um, that reflects that kind of very anti-Semitic European Catholicism, um, especially Central Central European Catholicism of that period. Um, so I do I view his views on this to be very eccentric. I mean, do do you do you actually think that they sort of make sense? Yeah, I mean, I within think within a frame within his frame. Yeah, so he, I mean, Wittgenstein has as and as you, I'm sure you also know a very uh, you know I don't want to say a street, but he had. This idea that there are the most important things about human existence are inutterable. Right. That's and the end fact, of the Tractatus. Yeah. Right. And yeah. this was, in fact, like his biggest sort of concern with yeah. Ramsey, as much as he loved uh, Frank Ramsey's system. He's like, no, look, there, we have to we have to retain a space for this extremely important aspect of existence. It's yeah. simply inutterable. Yeah. So, I mean. I'm, I'm very drawn to this. And then as a result, I'm very drawn to his idea that, that belief about these kinds of things is mostly praxis and maybe entirely praxis. It's, uh, the, it's the decision to, 
Um, be self-aware that no matter how you live your life, you're living it in submission to an authority of some kind. And then just the choice made, you know, however uh, it might make sense to you to make the choice about what that authority will be. See, it's, it's funny. I, I go with Wittgenstein as far as even that statement in the Tractatus. But it then strikes me that there's something wrong with the idea that that you would then take that as an opportunity to do philosophy, right? In other words, in other words, this reminds me a little bit of what I take to be the completely wrong-headed continental treatment of Kant, right? Um, Kant, the continentals, what they seem to fail to understand is that Kant is really not very different from Hume. Um, um, and that all the stuff that they're trying to build up on top of it is exactly what Kant would have said was outside the limits of rational inquiry. Um, um, so, you know, what I would want to say is that when you reach that point, you're now in the territory of what Hume would call the sentiments, okay? Mm -hmm. The passions, right? But I wouldn't say that you were in a territory that then is fruitfully explored through philosophical investigation, right? Because philosophical mm. investigation is, by definition, a kind of rational inquiry, right? And so, you know, if it's the case that, you know, that which cannot be blah, 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 cannot be said, it's then completely wrongheaded to then go start doing philosophy about it, right? I mean, that that's just would be obviously, in, you know, a mistake, and so if Wittgenstein's doing that, then I say, okay, that's where I get off the boat. Mm -hmm. I like Wittgenstein when he's kind of like a smarter Ryle. I don't like mystical Wittgenstein. I think mystical Wittgenstein is the least interesting thing about him. And so probably the most you. to do with his various mental illnesses, right, is what I think. Um, his I obvious mental illnesses, right. So um, um, I think my answer to this will tie back to something I said more toward the beginning, which is that I think philosophy of religion should focus more on axiology, should focus more on why it would be good for it to be true. And you were like, well, why would that sort of answer mm. these questions? And so we've now come full circle, which is great because my comment on that will make more sense now. So I, I do like this idea of his that this kind of belief is just a willful submission to an authority in like the sort of, you know, Jamesian self-awareness that we don't have a choice. We have to submit in some way and Pascal as well, and that, you know, how should we go about making the choice then about what picture of the world or what idea of the world to submit to, to live as though it's true, even if we don't have any access to, you know, even if we can't speak of it uh, in a way that's truth functional, um, we do live as though certain things are true. Um, I think all of us do, and I think it's best to be self-aware of that. Uh, and so then that's why I think it's, it would be good for philosophy of religion um, to focus on, say, what, what makes it the case that it would be good if Christianity were true or Judaism were true or Islam were true? Um, because, at least for myself, so um, why I, uh, what my religious life primarily takes the form of isn't uh, belief but uh, pragmatic acceptance taken on the basis of hope in, you know, something like the, the framework that I'm living within is, is, is accurate, is true, is correct. Um, can we take one of these, can we take one of these examples specifically and, and look at it? So, 
Um, because it just something just occurred to me that we could talk about that would be specific. Um, so within the fr- frame of the question, what would be good to be true, right? <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I want to ask you later about this assumption that we have to submit to authority. I don't, I don't think I understand that either. And I don't understand what kind of claim that is. Um, um, so I'm going to want to ask you about that, but let's just bracket it for me. Let's just take it for granted. All right. Now the question then becomes, okay, well, what kind of authority would be good to, would it be good for us to submit to? And let's just take two competing options, right? So let's take one is Christianity and the other one is Judaism. These are the ones I know the most about. I don't know enough about Islam to have an intelligent conversation about it. I know quite a lot about both Judaism and Christianity. I have a degree in history as well in philosophy, and I specialize in the Second Temple period, and I wrote a doc, an honors thesis on um, comparing the Pharisees, the Qumranians, and the early Christians. So I, I know quite a bit about, about this. Um, so here's, here's, here's what a Christian would say as to why um, mine is the better kind of authority to, to believe in, right? And that's because we actually have an answer to the problem of suffering, right? And that is um, uh, justice in the afterlife, Okay. Judaism doesn't have that, right? But what if I, as a Jew, say back, you know, that's very nice. The problem is there isn't any afterlife. And so justice in it doesn't happen. The reason our view is better is because our view leaves you with the tragic dimension of life, and that is actually what it is, right? And so unlike you, we are actually realistic about what the human condition is, whereas you are fantasizing about the human condition. Now, I don't see how that can then gets adjudicated, right? There is no way to adjudicate that philosophically or any other way, okay? I mean, and so I guess I don't see how any of this is really fruitfully examined through philosophical analysis. This, again, seems to me to come down to, again, things that are entirely subjective and thus are not really fruitfully disputed, right? I mean, you and I could argue that forever, and there would never be any way in principle to resolve that dispute, would there? Um, well, so, I mean, I was – how do I want to put this? So, I mean, if, if we're coming at it from a, from the, a Wittgensteinian standpoint, then it's not open for someone to be like, oh, well – you know, sure, that would be nice, but it's not true. If we're assuming that these, you know, these things are like pseudo propositions, they're not actually truth apt. Right. Um, so I'm just posing as if when the guy dies, he went to heaven. I'm adopting a posture. I'm engaging in performances, whatever. Okay, uh, fine. So now you say my performances are better than your performances, right? And what I want to know is what's the basis upon which to adjudicate the relative merits of our performances. So it's going to come down to the same argument. I'm going to say that your performances are fantastical, unrealistic, and self-deluding. You're going to say that my performances are pessimistic and blah, 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 blah. We're having the same argument. Yeah, I mean, sure. I I don't know that I think that it's more hopeless than sort of any other philosophical issue. I mean, like, you know, debates between different normative ethics systems seem like they kind of go the same way. You know, you have a bunch of um, a bunch of cases and the utilitarians like, well, I got six of those right. And then, 
you know, the virtue ethicist is like, well, I got seven of those right. And the, the, the Kantians like, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I mean, what you said is kind of actually really <laughs> profound in that it, I'm famous or not, that's, that's the wrong word. Um, amongst, the, amongst the four people who know who I am, um, I'm known for claiming that most of the major philosophical subjects are suffer from radical indeterminacy, um, which is why I don't think, which is why I think that there should be much less philosophy published because the amount of it that's being published in my view operates under the misimpression that these things actually have concrete answers that deeper and deeper and deeper dives are going to get you to. And what I find is that usually by the second or third time around, most of what's useful has been exhausted. And after that, it's diminishing returns. Mm. Um, so I have very strong views just about the way the whole discipline has been going. Um, but if what, you know, what, what you're now saying, I mean, really is kind of strong in that if I think that of all of philosophy, then you're right in that philosophy of religion's no worse off. <laughs> that all of it is performances, right? Now that's really interesting and, and very deep, and I'm not speaking facetiously. So do you want to maybe follow that along a little bit? Does that diminish sure. philosophy? It's certainly not what people thought it was, right? <laughs> We're all engaged in these kinds of performances, right? That really don't have any adjudicating <laughs> principle or now that's does that does that should that change our feelings about philosophy? Mm, or are, are we giving a lot of false marketing? Um, well, yes. <laughs> we agree on that. We are giving a lot of false marketing. <laughs> Um, but do you really think, do you think that in a sense, is that what you're saying that philosophy of religion is no worse off than the rest? It's all like that, man. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, when I say that I'm an agnostic, I don't even just mean religiously. I, I'm, it sort of is a kind of deep part of who I am that I, uh, at least feel like, and this could of course be part self-deception, but as though I can kind of, you know, see the pull of so many different, um, so many different beliefs, so many different worldviews, um, and uh, in such a removed way that I'm just sort of at this impasse where, where I have to pick one to be able to do anything, um, to be able to act at all. And so maybe part of what I think philosophy is good at is putting people there. Um, so I, I mostly agree with your critiques of sort of um, – you know, unreflective theism or even moderately reflective theism. I just think that it applies equally to all other, what Taylor calls spontaneous social imaginaries. And that, and that really, you know, living well is, is much less about this sort of airtight theoretical reasoning. And a lot of it is voluntary. There's a lot more voluntarism than people think. What ha you know it's interesting I, no i'm i'm really i'm I'm really quite kind of a little overwhelmed by this because you got i mean i I now see something that I just didn't see, and that is that all this time I've been sort of holding something against philosophy of religion that actually is not consistent with my own view of philosophy right um um 
Um, I've been acting like philosophy is better off otherwise um, when everything I've been saying about philosophy over there on that, when I'm over there would suggest it's just as badly off. And so I, I actually, I'm actually sort of having to think uh, in real time now about this. Um, in uh, in McIntyre's Yeah, go on, go on. That's fine. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you go on. I, I have to, this has to percolate. So please go on. Um, well, in, in Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, he has a really similar critique as, as you to these, uh, or, and, you know, really as to me, uh, of these, these normative debates between the utilitarians and the, and the deontologists and how it's, it, they, they're, they're completely, like you said, inadjudicable. Um, you can't, uh, it's, it's, it's lobbing stuff at each other. You know, there's there's always going to be a, a place for the the other side to go. You know, a bullet for them to bite, um, a, a caveat to be made, uh, and there's there's no sense in which it's actually like a progressing enterprise. And they're all confirmed or disconfirmed ultimately by when and where they run up against our pre-theoretic intuitions. I mean, every yeah. one of the best arguments against both utilitarianism and Kantianism are essentially appeals to intuition, right? I mean, exactly. and so I, I mean. And so this, the whole debate kind of has an artificial quality to it um, as, as if it's somehow something that's theoretically resolvable. That's why, you know, in terms of moral philosophy, the one I, the one I like the most and the one I really only have any use for is W.D. Ross, the right and the good, right? Because he doesn't really offer any kind of theory, right? What he basically does is just give a description of how obligation arises out of our relationships and how every every actual obligation is a matter of judgment that you could that you could later on in hindsight turn out to be a been a mistake, right? Yeah. Um, and so I really like him for the precisely the reason that it strikes me as being really anti theoretical um, mm-hmm. in all the ways that I like. But then I mean I guess I do one of the things I wonder about, and it's something that I have said also uh, in my other in my other walks of life, um, and that is that. Ultimately, everything always come, is going to come down to negotiation, that it's not – that we have a model of confirmation and disconfirmation from the sciences, and we kind of think that there's confirmation and disconfirmation in other areas as well, right? So that, you know, because we can have a dispute over, let's say, you know, how many moons does Saturn have, right? Well, then we can go find that out, right? You say there's eight. I say there's – by the way, I have no idea how many there are, but let's – right? And so we can go find that out. Okay, now that's settled, right? Um, and I think that we like to think that philosophy can be like that. Maybe not with regard to empirical confirmation, but there is logical confirmation and disconfirmation, Right. And it looks like that's just not true, right? Um, um, if what we're talking about is true. So then it all becomes kinds of ne- kind of negotiation, right? And so do you think philosophy, I guess what I'm asking is, does your thoughts about this, which I'm more and more think I'm agreeing with, really entail something much more radical about philosophy? And that is that philosophy really should be a lot less about the conditions under which arguments are prosecuted and adjudicated and more about negotiations. In other words, should philosophy start to look more like diplomacy? That's a good question. Um, That's what I'm starting to wonder. I mean, you're sort of actually wake, giving me all sorts of ideas that are kind of getting me excited. Um, but it's a pretty radical view, right, of philosophy. 
Yeah. Well, sir, I mean, it's certainly a radical view for anything, I think. Um, Everything analytic, for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was going to say, I think this, this wouldn't have been like an alien view to the ancient Greek philosophers. Um, I think uh, for a lot of them, that would have made sense, right? I mean, you see like the, the Epicureans um, have like a very pragmatic approach to their worldview that is one that you might call um, uh, you know, something that has been arrived at through negotiation. Um, I might call it something like, you know, refer to it more as something that's been arrived at through axiology. They have some idea that living this way is, is good, is, is, is the, I mean, you know, they, they have to pick one and they're like, well, this seems like to me, it has the best chance of being like the good way to live. Um, but the thing is that even axiology, as it's done traditionally in philosophy, is treated as if these are rationally scrutable questions. And if what we're saying is correct, they really aren't rationally scrutable. And they shouldn't even be thought of in that frame. It should be thought of more in the manner of, of, of negotiation, right? The way, think about how, how you negotiate over something, right? Um, over, you know, God forbid, you know, you have children and you get divorced and one of you is Catholic and the other one's Jewish and you're trying to negotiate how the hell you're going to handle the holidays, right? That's a very different process from a rationally scrutable presentation of premises and, conclu- and evaluations of relationship to premises to conclusions, et cetera. That's what mm-hmm. I'm getting at is does philosophy, should philosophy's whole profile be different in a sense if what we're saying is true? Well, I certainly think that some something that, so maybe we should we should more closely define what we mean by rational scrutiny. Rational scrutiny is something that's divorced from details about the individual person, right? I think that's a that's a hopeless problem because the rash the, the province of the rational is the general, not the particular, right? I mean that's yeah. just a sort of a basic thing about it, right? All yeah. rational inference has to do with generalizations, right? right. There's no rash, rational and rational treatments of particulars, right? Those are particular (laughs) yeah so Um, i can be inconsistent and i can figure that out through a kind of rational scrutiny but um this idea that i can like completely divorce you know deep things about me like my spontaneous social imaginary like my um you know whatever my my intuitions are that won't be dislodged about certain things the idea that i can completely divorce myself in that way is uh yeah i think like a fantasy that needs to be given up because it's it's a it's a falsehood that we keep perpetuating that's really getting us nowhere in, in a lot of these cases. I mean, you know, in, in the realm of logic, sure, go for it. In the realm of ethics, I think it's not only is it unachievable, I think it would be undesirable if it were achieved. I think to try to achieve that is to just mistake the project of, of a lot of these things that we're trying to do. But if you think about how philosophy is done in the mainline tradition in these areas, it is essentially the application of logic to all of these questions. Right. And if what we're saying is true, that's fundamentally a mistake, right? I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that sort of misunderstands what the activity actually is. Um, um, and, and, uh, and, and I find that, um, I find that really uh, interesting and provocative. Um, um, you know, I'm wondering whether there is one specific area in which this has been fully articulated. I don't know if you've read, have you read Bernard Williams essay, the human prejudice? Uh, it's from his I last it. collection. It's the one about singer and about veganism, about moral veganism. 
I haven't, but I'm, I'm wondering if he goes a similar route as his against utilitarianism. Okay. So, so I'm just going to, this is, this is easy. I mean, it's not hard. What basically Williams does, the first thing he does is he talks about humanism and how it's, it was expressed both in a positive form and a negative form. So he says, you know, Luther is also a humanist, right? Um, human concerns are still central. It's just that we're terrible, right? As opposed to, you know, uh, as opposed to Erasmus, right? I mean, I mean, um, um, and so, um, and then he talks about Singer. Um, and um, he basically attributes to Singer the, the effort to sort of examine questions of value from a neutral position, that's how you get the sort of the speciesism and all this sort of stuff. And what Williams says is that, that, that Singer is completely self-deluded, right? And that he's self-deluded because what he doesn't understand is that his own utilitarianism not only is not an expression of a um, neutral position, it is actually an expression of human prejudice. Okay. Yeah. The same thing with Kant, right? It is not an accident that both what Kant and Mill take to be supremely valuable are things that matter to us. Right? We care about autonomy. We care about suffering. I have no idea what a freaking crab value. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, that, that's just – so when we're worried about the crab suffering, that is an imposition of the human point of view. Right? Mm-hmm. That is an expression of the human prejudice. It's not – a neutral judgment. <clears throat> so I like that. And I'm wondering whether we could articulate a version of that for philosophy as a whole. Mm, yeah. That all of philosophy is an expression is a kind of, and right. So, so his last collection, William's last collection is called philosophy as a humanistic discipline. And maybe what we're sort of saying is that philosophy has forgotten that it's a humanistic discipline. I'm sorry, I talked too long. Please go ahead. No, I mean, I, I entirely agree with you. You know, there's, there's always been, uh, not always, uh, but for the last century, uh, or maybe a little more, you know, philosophy has been sort of beleaguered by this math envy. Um, that and science. Sort of, and science yeah. envy. Yeah, right. Um, and... And certainly, I mean, it sounds like he, there's a lot of similar themes to his um, argument uh, against utilitarianism uh, in the, in the, the dual essay with, uh, with, with smart. Um, yes. Which, yeah. So I really liked, I mean, so, so obviously, as you know, um, but what your listeners might not, if they haven't read it, is that he, he makes this really fascinating argument in there, which I use in another paper of mine, um, that utilitarianism, his argument isn't that um, in these two cases he presents in the essay, his argument's not that utilitarian gets the wrong answer about what uh, Jim or George ought to do, but rather that utilitarianism gets it too easily. Uh, it, the, it's, it, it gives you an immediate answer, which to, to Williams shows that utilitarianism actually isn't capturing the human experience of being a moral agent. Um, and right. So I think this is kind of a universal problem in, in so many areas of philosophy where we forget that we're, you know, something that is, that is present in our inquiry is human, you know, cognition and experience of the ideas of the propositions that we're discussing. When we forget that, 
it's easy to convince ourselves that that's not an element of it, that it's purely objective, that it's, that it, it must yep. be, all of these things must be real truth, truth apt propositions that we can just sort of manipulate like integers. But that, that simply isn't true of so many areas that philosophy is interested in. So yeah. we should, you know, do that. switching to another frame of reference, but it's one that the viewers will know because I've done a, a lot of shows on this. <clears throat> um, there's an analogous sort of philosophers almost see, it seems like they've forgotten. So Wilfred Sellers, if you, in my view, if you read correctly his paper um, uh, on the scientific and manifest images, ultimately concludes that the manifest image is fundamental. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he, that I say that's the correct to read it is because if you read it carefully, there's a certain point at which he makes it very clear that the scientific image always winds up being interpreted in terms of the manifest image, right? That's why, and the way I phrase this is, that's why scientific inquiry is narrational, right? <clears throat> if, if, if we weren't interpreting the scientific image in terms of this manifest image, science would just be a bunch of statistics. Like if a computer did science, it would just be statistics, right? Um, the fact that we even talk about origins of this and where this comes from, and that, that's already kind of an interpretation, right? Into in human terms. <clears throat> um, and so I do think that this idea has been expressed a number of times across in a number of different places, but somehow there hasn't been a complete digestion of the idea with regard to philosophy as a whole. Um, you know, so for example, with regard to epistemology, I think you could very easily <clears throat> make this kind of Williamsy point in epistemology. Um, and, um, and if you can do it in epistemology, you can do it in ontology. And if you can do it in ontology, you can do it elsewhere. So I just wonder whether there's almost room for a kind of a new wave of proto Wittgensteinian thought, right? I mean, maybe, maybe now's a good time to sort of say, Hey, wait a minute, this whole enterprise, you know, we had this conversation about this whole enterprise about a hundred years ago. Looks to me like we need to have it again because everybody's kind of back to doing this bullshit view from nowhere stuff. Right. What do you, I'll give you the last word because we're over the hour. So I don't want to, I don't want to test everybody's patience, but I'll give you the last <laughs> word on this. Uh, my last word will just be one of, uh, you know, hopeful agreement. I mean, I would certainly love to see that. I think Wittgenstein is still, you know, sort of a curse word um, in analytic circles right now. I think it's unfortunate um, for, you know, so many reasons that you've articulated already. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would be, I would be so on board with that. So, I mean, part of my project, of course, is trying to articulate um, a, is trying to articulate a, a, a semantic theory of action. Um, in in the the vein of Wittgenstein, but you know an uphill battle is that what you have to do when you're writing this stuff is you have to be the one to initiate the paradigm shift. In, it's very hard. Like it's very hard. It's very yeah. hard to even have arguments about free will or action and stuff because you're arguing with people that are in a that that are operating in a frame where I think the entire frame is a mistake, yeah. and so it's very hard. You know, they want, you want, you want to go in and argue with them, but you kind of can only have a meta level argument. Yeah, right. Yeah. You <sighs> need that thing that triggers the gestalt shift and it's not something you can 
argue to um, in this very analytic way. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Well, Megan Fritz, I want to thank you. And I want to, um, I, I rarely do this. And so um, this is one of those rare occasions where um, I think you've, uh, I've, I've been convinced otherwise than I had started out, um, which is, which is refreshing because it's freaking rare. Um, um, and, um, so I really want to thank you, um, uh, on this. Not only was it a great conversation, but I, I actually kind of got me thinking about this in a way that I hadn't before and actually have given me a whole bunch of, of ideas, which is, I find the best thing about conversation. I don't know about you, but I love to write, but to me, the ultimate, place where my best ideas come from or out of conversation. I don't know if that's the same for you. That is that that's actually exactly the same for me. I'm actually not a very good writer. I have to talk about some idea multiple times before I can write it coherently at all. Yep. Well, but you're very young still. <coughs> Excuse me. And you're very new. Writing is one of those things you just get better the more you do it. <clears throat> yeah. So I used to write in a very stilted academic sort of way and then the older I got, the more I kind of made myself read a lot of non-philosophy, like a lot of literature. I, like I made sure that I never just started reading too much philosophy. <clears throat> and so then as the literary values became more important to me, I started to be, pay more attention to my writing as a stylist. And now I would say that I get as much pleasure in writing from the style, from, from the wordsmithing as I do from the content. I really, to me, there's really a joy in just crafting a really good sentence. Yeah. I don't care what it's about, um, but a sentence that has punch and snap and a little, a little jazz and maybe is a little bit naughty or whatever. I really like. Um, but in terms of the best ideas, they always come from me at a conversation, and so I've actually found isolation to be very, very difficult. Um, yeah. And so I've been actually doing more of these kinds of things just because I'm starving for conversation anyway thank you very much and um um i wish you the best of luck in what's going to be I, i'm sure i don't need to tell you a very hard job search as you go forward and i wish the both of you the best of luck in it and uh, i hope i'll speak to you again yes thank you dan i had a great time thank you so much for having me on all right take care